Nah, not those lions. Three lions we can get behind. And he hoofed it. There's more pressure being ratcheted up with a loss like that, of course. Just getting the head boxed off, should that just kind of happen? For all your Lions coverage this summer, download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now you're very welcome back to the show. So we're going to pick our way through the Sunday papers. Very happy to say we have Dr. Katie Liston, senior lecturer at Ulster University with us. We have Rory O'Connor of the Irish Independent as well. The front page as well. I mean, it's tricky for the papers today for obvious reasons. They haven't got the story of the day and uh, nothing they could do about that. But the uh, Sunday Independent have Kelly Harrington at the top. It's the first day of the rest of her life. Uh, piece inside page 19. There's still some good pieces on Kelly Harrington in the papers today, which definitely have a bit of extra resonance after the events of 6am this morning. So the front page of the Sunday Independent, the picture is of Aaron Galan for Limerick, yesterday scoring the only goal in his side's 11-point win over Waterford. Who's next? Ruthless Limerick march on is the headline. Beneath that, Gatlin's future, grim as Lions lose. That's Warren Gatlin's future. Uh, The grim part they're talking, by the way, is just the immediate future as opposed to anything uh, more damaging. So uh, he was just uh, chatting and they were asking him what's next. And he says, well, I have a long flight home and then 14 days isolation in a hotel. That's the least of what I'm looking forward to doing. So you can imagine that is quite tough for Gatland. And I presume the players as well, if Gatland has to do it. I don't know what the various rules are, but home and then 14 days in a hotel room. That will be a lot of time to think about what went wrong for Warren Gatland. Uh, Sunday Mirror Sport then. Uh, Treaty back and decider. That's Limerick again. Limerick 125, Waterford 17 points if you missed the uh, scoreline. Obviously, it's Kilkenny and Cork today. And then beneath that, Harry Kane talk. Up to you, Harry. Spurs star will have to drive deal if he wants the £100 million plus city move is the view there in the Sunday Mirror. We have the back page of the Mail on Sunday then. Again, it's Limerick. So, uh, Garoge Hegarty and Keane Lynch. Uh, posing for a photo. No derailing Limerick as Champions Cruise passed Waterford into final. And then a uh, brewing story here, unfortunately. Tyrone COVID cases put All-Ireland semi-final in doubt. So it does seem as if Tyrone are struggling with an outbreak of COVID. A significant number of players, it says here, uh, courtesy of Philip Lanigan, are self-isolating as a result of more infections within the camp. So Tyrone beat Monaghan in the Ulster final last week without Rory Brennan and Frank Burns and Tuna McCann and joint manager Fergal Logan wasn't present either. They've had a round of tests and the results of those tests are due tomorrow. So hopefully there's good news. And there is the possibility, if needs be, of rescheduling the match. The All-Ireland final is on August 29th, so there is a gap week if needs be. So already uh, Saturday, August 21st has been talked about if the match can't go ahead as planned. That would be the day before the hurling final. So uh, the Tyrone camp struggling with that. Uh, Sunday Times, they go with the lines again as their main picture. A picture of Alan jones uh, beneath the pile of bodies. Lions lose series again to late Stein penalty. And uh, beneath that, the big picture, the main story is semi-final threat after latest Tyrone outbreak. Michael Foley here again. Similar uh, points to Philip Lanigan's piece on Tyrone and the COVID outbreak and the possibility of moving the game to the Saturday before the hurling final. Then we have a back page of the star and it's Stein in neck for lines. It's uh, Greal Steel, Jack Grealish making his uh, debut yesterday in the Community Shield. Sunday World, Limerick here again. Limerick have plenty to spare as Waterford are dismantled is how they put it. And then Sun Sport, they go with uh, Harry Kane's story um, in isolation at training ground, Harry Kane apparently, and they have Limerick as well. And then at the very top, they have Kelly's Our Hero. And so they write on the back page here, The Sun. By the time you pick up this paper, you will know whether Kelly Harrington has won a gold or silver medal. Sun Sports says it does not matter the colour of the medal because Harrington has secured a unanimous decision from the people of Ireland. Humble, humorous, the 31-year-old is the best of us and has shown that on the Olympic stage. She's a frontline worker who put aside concerns about her own health and Olympic ambitions to continue working as a cleaner in St. Vincent's Hospital Fairview. She has stressed that whatever happens here does not define her. She is right as her catchphrase phrase goes, Hakuna Matata. So that was a nice way, I suppose, of covering uh, Kelly Harrington on the back page of The Sun. And Katie, listen, it's uh, it's much easier to say it doesn't matter if it's gold or silver when she's won the gold, I think. Uh, this is a much happier morning than if we were all here saying, well, look, a silver medal is still a wonderful achievement. 
Gold is uh, wonderful in the scenes from her home this morning. Equally wonderful. Heartwarming and a really nice way to, to finish the Olympic schedule as well from an Irish perspective, Joe, because we've probably just properly gorged out, haven't we, on the array of sport on view over the last few weeks, as well as the timing of the highlights, because in some ways the time zones has almost worked to our advantage. Sometimes you think, you know, psychologically, well, if I sleep through this tonight, I'll get the highlight first thing in the morning, not of obviously Kelly, but of some of the other events as well. And there's so many interwoven stories and issues that have come through the uh, the Olympics this time round as well. It's a really nice feature, and I'm sure we'll get to this in a few minutes, of the kind of performance of Team Ireland overall in the uh, in the Sindo. And I would imagine there's some within Team Ireland that are probably a little bit disappointed because there were aspirations, I think, for medalists from some of our other Olympians as well. Rory, did you set the alarm for 5.58 or did you watch it since? 5.55, Joe. Just watched it in bed um, quietly with earphones in, trying not to wake the baby. Um, got just pangs of regret that I like. I only live 20-minute walk from Portland Row. I, I just wish I got up at half five and walked over because it just looked incredible. Obviously, like it wasn't my party and I probably feel like a gay crasher if I was there, but like that looked like Italia 90 this morning and it's it's just... It, it, she, Kelly Harrington just seems like such an authentic person and it's, it's it's so rare to hear people with her accent and, and, and her brother and her family's accent being talked about so positively in national media, being portrayed so positively, just seeing their joy and, and, and their, um, just that outpouring of emotion this morning. It's just like every time you hear a clip or watch a clip from there or listen to any of them speaking, it just brings a smile to your face. It's just lifted everyone this morning. It's been fantastic. Yeah, I thought one of the more incredible scenes uh, Katie was when the verdict was in and it was positive and they cut to the street and uh, I likened it to like the Black Friday sales in the US where they open the doors and the crowd all run in en masse so everybody running up from the big screen up to the Harrington house and then the Harrington's opening the door at the same time and dad trying to get the champagne open and I think one brother has Yvonne the mother on his back and the other's jumping up and down and you could see like the closeness like you know good friends over the years suddenly greeting each other and it was just the most beautiful emotional powerful few moments and there are those feral moments in sport Joe because it allows us all to have a, an anchor of meaning I suppose and a sense of high mat almost where we experience our own villages or even smaller local communities like Portland, Roe and the towns and cities. We experience them with the people that we know. And sometimes it can be that buffer against the broader social, economic and political forces at work. And that was certainly the case. And I think all of us wish we had some direct connection to Portland Row today. And, and I guess the, you know, the collective support and, and sense of happiness on the part of Kelly Harrington, because it's been a long shift for her. Um, I heard some of the, the interview you had earlier with her brother and, and she talks about it a bit more in Tommy Conlon's piece as well today in the Sunday Independent. So it's, you know, it's, it's been a tough and, and a rewarding, thankfully, for her outcome. Yes. Well, if you have that close to hand, you could maybe elaborate on that because the papers have done their best here and this was a success story either way. So they could write the Harrington pieces, whether it was gold or silver. So a lot of the pieces still stand up. So what was in Tommy's piece? So Tommy's on page 19 of the Sunday Independent Sport. And, and like some of the other writers you've mentioned, Joe, he was anticipating whether it was going to be gold or silver. So we could read this, I think, with a sense of release, no matter what. But he does talk about the extent to which um, high-end sport almost demands of its practitioners that their connections with community are compromised, if not severe, and, and severed. And that's why uh, this particular medal stands out, I guess, for the authenticity that Rory's just mentioned. But as you go through the piece, you do get a real sense and he brings it to life, the contrast and the demands that there are in order to achieve this in many ways. So he goes on to talk about um, the background and the ways in which Kelly was running out of options. She was a drifting teenager before she discovered boxing, or as he puts it, before boxing discovered her. And in classic style, sport offered her an alternative to the wrong pathway in life, which was apparently beckoning. And then he goes on a little bit to talk about the performance of boxing, which is, is of course, the, the ribbon sport in many ways for, for Irish Olympics. And as, as you've mentioned earlier, the fact that uh, 60 kilograms was an Olympic weight and Katie Taylor was queen of that division. So when Taylor turned pro after Rio, the Rio Olympics in 2016, it left a vacancy that Harrington subsequently occupied. 
And she says herself, and this is Tommy quoting her, I've been living in the shadows of a fantastic athlete in Katie Taylor. You know, like it's hard when you're living in the shadow of someone, you can imagine how sick you're going to get of doing that. But whereas Taylor conquered her sport as if it were her manifest destiny, Harrington struggled to square her success with her self-image. And I think there is still a sense in, in the really authentic interview she gives of still being almost disbelieving of what she's managed to achieve. Mm. And, and hopefully over time coming to grips with that and realizing that it is a very unique position and she's now one of very few who can claim on, on the part of Irish athletes at least to have won Olympic gold. But at the end of that piece, Tommy Conlon also talks to her about and quotes her on the difficulty she had to endure while while at the Olympics. And that's one of the standout things for me, Joe, over the course of, of the many issues that have, I suppose, come to the fore in the Olympics is the ways in which the role of spectators is often commented on positively and negatively. And in a lot of cases, there were some events where there were fewer spectators than normal and you had athletes performing to their to their highest levels. There were other events where there were no spectators, maybe a, perhaps only officials. And for the athletes themselves, uh, Kelly says, people think you're having a great time out here. And she said this after the semi-final. I've been sitting in my room, looking at the four walls, going to the food hall, maybe a five-minute walk, back to my room, then a little session with my coaches. That's what dedication is. And then that transfers into the ring. It's patience to be able to do that for 35 days so that I can do that for nine minutes in there. And I think that in some ways answers Neil's observation earlier. I know Neil Tracy was talking about perhaps his naive assumption that that was the only thing that all our athletes are going to think about when they're there. But when you've just survived that amount of time, not only in isolation, you know, not being pretty much disconnected from the normal Olympic routine, but by the sounds of it also living in your own head for that period of time and for Kelly working her way through and trying to take it one step at a time, that has also been, I think, a very notable psychological achievement on her part because she's still quite disbelieving of what she's managed to achieve herself. And it's very endearing, I think. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And, and you know, Tommy says she's struggled to square her success with her self-image. And he has that quote that she gave in an interview just the other day. She says, sometimes I think I'm lucky. <laughs> and then it's like it's like CBT happening before our eyes, you know, because then she uh, rationalizes with herself. But then I can't be so lucky to be winning all these things and end up here with a bronze medal in my bag from the games. You know, it's even like some part of her brain is saying, well, I guess not everyone. You can't look your way to a bronze medal. So maybe I'm, I'm actually OK. Um, we're going to pick this up in just a second on the far side of news headlines. Now, you're very welcome back. So happy to say we have Dr. Katie Liston with us, senior lecturer at Ulster University. We have Rory O'Connor from the Irish Independent as well. We've been talking about Kelly Harrington. I was just uh, reading again that Tommy Conlon piece you had picked out, Katie, and even quotes from Kelly Harrington herself, where she was talking about the last 40 days or so, coping with the essential loneliness of her mission, as Tommy puts it. She said, people think you're out here having a great time. I've been sitting in my room looking at the four walls, going to the food hall, maybe a five minute walk back to my room, then a little session with my coaches. That's what dedication is. And then that transfers into the ring. It's patience to be able to do that for 35 days. So I can do that for nine minutes in the ring, is what she said after one of the fights. So, I mean, that is some stint, Rory O'Connor, isn't it? 35 and then I guess now the extra five days since that comment, 40 odd days effectively in your hotel room. Yeah, it's a long time to be living in your own head. And, and with the, I know she seems to be able to shut it out and, and kind of has been, able, you know, even I think her parents have said, you know, they've, they've heard very little from her directly that they're kind of content to leave her be and, and to do her work and to focus on her fights. But you know, I think you know it, it. It'd be hard not to have an idea of how much it means to the people back home and to let that seep into your mind. So it just shows how mentally strong she is. And and the piece I I've kind of gone back to today. That I think the piece that brought brought me awareness of Kelly Harrington was one Johnny Waterson wrote in the Irish Times in 2019, in February 2019, that they've actually republished on their website this morning. Um, it was a one-on-one -on -one interview. It was out of competition and it was a proper sit-down. And, and I think it's it's quoted in a couple of the profiles that I've read this morning, the one in the Sunday Times um, that Dennis Walsh did. And it's just really, like she's just so open and so revealing and, and, and talks with such clarity about her own kind of journey from 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 leaving school at 14 and just finding that school was, wasn't the place for her. And, you know, like she's like she would have been written off at that point by people who knew her and people who, you know, as someone who wasn't going to make it. And her, she comes from an area that's written off by society. And and yet, you know, she turned around through boxing. She joined the army and she walked away for four months in because she just didn't like it. 
So she had the strength of character back then and as a teenager to say, no, this isn't for me. And, you know, like it shines true. And her, like her poster was up in the North Inner City all through the first lockdown as, as, you know, telling people to stay at home because they knew that people would listen to Kelly, you know, that, the, that she's an example for that area. She knows that she is a flag, way, or flag, flag bearer and always has been for the last kind of five or six years or, or longer for, for where she comes from. But she wears it very easily. And she seems to just be able to work with you know, like, bear, you know, bear it very easily and also bear the pressure on her shoulders and bring her Hakuna Matata mentality through. And, like, it's easy saying that, but it's much more difficult to live it. And um, I'm just full of admiration for the, for the woman. She was, she's just been so impressive in and out of the ring over the last couple of weeks and, and beyond. I also think, Katie, there's this slightly odd phenomenon, and it applied to Katie Taylor in 2012 as well, whereby... People know of Kelly Harrington and have done for some time and she was a world champion in 2018 and they see her on The Late Late Show or see her with Tommy Tiernan or she's been on this show numerous times or various other shows a lot of the time as well. I suspect 90% of the watching audience over the past couple of weeks were seeing her fight for the first time. Her fights are never on. Mm-hmm. And I also suspect her life is about to change in ways she cannot predict because of that. I mean, in that Tommy Conlon piece, she talks about the importance of needing to escape the tunnel of full-time training. Um, And so working with psychiatric patients in St. Vincent's provided her with this balance to the monotony of her physical regime in the build-up to the Olympics. And because of that late development, she's really immersed herself in that side of her boxing career, probably only over the last five to six years. And there's probably more to come, Mm. given now the confidence I think that she'll take from this um, she does her shift on the ward every second weekend. And I, I get the sense reading between the lines of that kind of discussion that not only is she, is she balanced, as Rory has said, but I think she recognizes she needs that balance. And that's going to be even more important to her now going forward because um, those who achieve Olympic gold medals, their lives can change, as I say, in ways that we can't quite anticipate. Yeah. On yeah. the late development, Dennis Walters has a piece in the Sunday Times uh, this time. And, you know, he was harking back to really, it's only 2016 when Harrington was funded properly. She arrived at the World Championships in Kazakhstan. On the way, she had to cut back, in the build-up to it rather, she had to cut back her working hours so she could devote more time to training, getting by on a social welfare check. She put together a little war chest to bring with her to Kazakhstan. When she could not stomach the food in the hotel, she blew the kitty on grub. And then she only received a Sport Ireland grant the following year. And then she won gold the year after that in 2018 at the World Championships. So, you know, it's not like sponsorship has come her way all that easy, easily either. So it really has been kind of a late blooming. Just to segue away from Harrington for a second and to the architecture around her. We all know about Zor. And that's all, you know, Zor is, is, is all we ever refer to him as. Zor Antia, his full name, obviously. So the man behind the medals is Sean McGoldrick here in the Sunday Independent. I thought this was a brilliant piece. And like Zor's role of honour is there. And it's Kenneth Egan, it's Darren Sutherland, it's Paddy Barnes. In London, it was Katie Taylor, John Joe Nevin, Paddy Barnes, Michael Conlon. And now Tokyo, Aidan Walsh and Kelly Harrington, obviously. And so Sean charts... Zora's arrival I hadn't been fully I don't know why I just I had not come across the details of how they found him in the first place and it's a fascinating piece by Sean McGoldrick Gary Keegan as we know um, huge figure in Irish sports sets up the high performance unit from about 2003 and he had it in his head that certainly a Russian trainer or a former Soviet Union trainer would have been the way to go and you know Europe had become very difficult the the Soviet Union had uh, broken up which meant suddenly all of these various states had brilliant boxers and it was making life very difficult for the Irish boxers is what somebody said here and we needed to learn all we could in Europe and become competitive again against European opponents and uh, Sean McGoldrick says here it was a simple case of serendipity which brought Antia to Ireland it was in the spring of 03 Cork businessman Dan O'Connell who's also an international boxing official he was friends with a boxing referee in Georgia Uh, The referee had invited him over to help train local referees. And so what O'Connell says, Dan O'Connell says was, I noticed a coach working with a group of boxers in the other half of the gym. The guy just caught my attention. I didn't know how to explain it. It's a bit like seeing a golfer swing a club. There was just something there. I remember thinking, that guy looks good. And so they sent out Antia and he said, yeah, maybe I might think about going to Ireland. Gary Keegan did his own research and he was blown away by what he found out about Zor. So he said... Uh, Zor was phenomenally successful, phenomenally entrepreneurial, a phenomenal relationship builder and very creative. 
Uh, this was very obvious because he had more boxers in the old Soviet Union teams than any of the republics other than Russia. There was the language issue, he says, but that was counterbalanced by other factors. And Darren O'Neill is later quoted saying Zor couldn't speak English, but he could speak boxing. And so Antti had an eight year old daughter, a four year old son. His wife, Nona, expected his stay in Ireland would be relatively short. Within two years, the entire family moved to Ireland. Their third child, George, was born here. All are now Irish citizens. And Kenneth Egan tells a great story about how Kenneth thought he was an eight out of ten boxer and Zor told him he was at a two and couldn't believe that he only trained twice a week and whipped everybody into shape. So like the Zorantia story, here he is. When did he come over? I guess shortly after 03. And here he is effectively 18 years later and has just quietly gone about his business. Like we don't Rory hear of Zor except for the mainly the Olympics every few years and he's there in the corner. And like it turns out, he was pretty much the best operator in the Soviet Union and somehow we nabbed him and it was courtesy of serendipity as much as anything. Yeah, there's a kind of there's a touch of the Stephen Cluxton man of mystery kind of thing, isn't it? The man in the background, it doesn't really give that many interviews and it doesn't speak English that well, and he's just there. He's this kind of figure who's in the background of all these champion fighters that we've watched every four to five years, depending on you know whether the Olympics is, is delayed or not, um, over the last couple of um, cycles. But I, I, you know, you would have presumed he would have been quite burnt by the the uh, Billy Walsh affair by by Rio. That's touched on with Sean McGoldrick's piece and. Um, he stuck with it. He 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 stayed he stayed true to this. To, you know, amidst all of the controversy that reigns around boxing behind the scenes, um, you know, losing fighters to the professional game and in the wake of Rio and building a new team and and and, and all of that as well. Like it, it's it's a very impressive um, CV that he's got. Like to put it mildly, and it's a really interesting story. And and you know, you've you've kind of gone through the highlights there, but. It's um, even the fact that he had this man, like this really impressive manifesto, but it was all in Georgian, so no one could understand it. Um, to, to break down that boundary and to come over at that stage of his career to a whole new country and make it his home, um, it's a it's a lovely story and it's 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 a real success story. And he's 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 clearly got some magic that that, that all of these fighters keep buying into, and, he, and 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 like he's like the boxing whisperer, isn't he? He's got this touch, this common touch that even when he maybe can't communicate in, in the words, he's able to get his message across. Yeah. Zora couldn't speak English, but he could speak boxing, Katie. Yeah, and where I am, there is victory. This is the one sentence he learned in English yeah. when he had to stand in front of the, the interview board and, and how right it was. <laughs> that, that piece actually, for me, what stands out for me about that piece is the, the nuances of the movement of sporting talent around the world, Joe, as part of this kind of almost global sporting arms race, because all the nations are vying for medals on the podium. And with that comes the movement of talent, crucially coaching talent as well. And I think what's striking about this case is the extent to which um, the high performance unit have not only managed to attract the talents of a clearly phenomenally successful coach, Mm. but he's brought with him a set of skills and a toolkit that has allowed him to adapt his knowledge to the cultural nuances of boxing in Ireland. And that's what's made it successful. Because there's been a lot of other cases where you get the sporting coaching talent parachuting in their ideas into a new environment, but those ideas don't quite work in that environment because they haven't been able to blend them. And the very fact that his family is now settled here, that their family, that the the child George is born and all are now Irish citizens, that undoubtedly has paid into the, the longevity with which he's now in Ireland and to the success he's managed to achieve. And the other thing that stands out, and he hasn't made very many public statements, as you say, but in passing, he has said in Tokyo that the nine medals that he's associated with should be 11. So he's held on to that hurt from Rio. Mm. He's held on to what happened with Michael Conlon, but also what happened with Katie Taylor. And he's managed to, you know, use that as a motivation for himself as well. Mm. You can think about the motivation he's, he's required over that period of time, not to mind the boxers themselves. Yeah. Well, listen, hopefully nobody outside of this country reads that piece because people will come for Zor mm. when they start to realise just how impressive this guy is. And um, before we leave the Olympics, then, Katie, I know you'd picked out a few different pieces. There was like Eamon Sweeney taking a bigger picture view of things. And then there was Declan Lynch in the main section of the Sunday Independent. And uh, Shane oh, Ross, I think, writing a piece he probably just thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, I, it struck me as one of these pieces he kind of hammered out in half an hour, you know, that way with his uh, a big smile on his face where he's. Yeah, I uh, think so. Yeah. So uh, what do you want to what do you want to focus on here before we move on well, elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, for anybody, maybe if they've been, you know, asleep for the last three weeks and no 
knows nothing about the Olympics in Ireland, which is unlikely, but there might be one or two. Eamon Sweeney does a nice kind of overview on page 16 and 17 of the uh, Sunday Independent Sport. Uh, Declan Lynch takes a bit more of a realistic view, um, and this is in page 24 of the the main paper, and he, he asks about the extent to which the improved performances might be attributed not only to the the Tokyo track, and he gives us a nice um, explanation of why many people are talking about that track being fast-tracked, and also equally of the analysis of the running shoes that are now super light shoes that contain a rigid plate and unique foam and so on. Hmm. So he, he takes a bit, brings us back to earth, I think, to ask, you know, a and, bit more and challenging. I have, I have to say, I would tend to agree with them, Katie. I mean, we're still dealing with the fallout of London. I mean, we're still not 10 years from London where all those samples can be tested and we still have medals being handed out and people upgraded with uh, failed tests. And I mean... <laughs> I take the point on the shoe technology and the fast track, but I mean, let's be honest, the Olympics here has a reputation and I doubt it's suddenly um, come good in the last couple of years. I mean, I think Lynch's scepticism will probably prove to be well founded over the next couple of years. I agree. I agree. And, and not least because, I mean, even the, I suppose, the trail of doping tests after London 2012 didn't really open up for maybe three to four years afterwards because... Mm. In many ways, all of the research would tell us that the, the developments in the use of performance-enhancing drugs are often ahead of the testers themselves. And he raises the point as well about whether the pandemic having curtailed the activities of the drug testers as well for at least a year leading up to Tokyo. So I think it's a healthy scepticism. But he ties it in importantly, Joe, into the change that's soon to come in Irish legislation around gambling, which, of course, is directly connected to sports. So he says... In relation to tying the two topics together, doping and gambling, basically the dopers have only one purpose, they just want to win, but there are gambling syndicates and other bad actors who play with a myriad of propositions and make them happen. Um, So he's raising, and I think rightly so, awareness of the need for that regulation to have happened much sooner than now, but also getting us to think about its impact going forward. And the final piece, if you want me to say something briefly on it, is, is, as you say, Shane Ross's opinion piece. And I think the most important thing to say about this one is that under opinion, and the headline on page 22 are the words commentary, insights, personal perspective. So I think all I could say about this is that it's definitely Shane Ross's personal perspective. And it's a, it's an enjoyable read because he reflects back, of course, to Rio 2016 and the role of Pat Hickey. And he draws out some of the concerns that other writers, reputable journalists in The, the Guardian and elsewhere, about Hickey's methods. And links that, I guess, to the one of the biggest political issues from, from the Tokyo Olympics, which is the treatment of the Belarusian athlete. And he raises then questions about um, Hickey's relationship with Lukashenko. So it's a nice, a nice read for those that are interested in the, uh, the, the politics of the Olympics. Yeah, I think his suggestion maybe Irish ambassador to Belarus might be the uh, role for Hickey is what he's uh, suggesting. So, yeah, his... Um, tongue firmly in his cheek I would think a lot of way, the way through although before I mean before Shane Ross gets too you know um, <laughs> I, I don't know what the word is like happy with himself it is worth remembering he did go on national radio to talk about how great John Delaney was uh, in late 2018 on this station and how like everything he heard at grassroots was great about John Delaney so you know there, I, I always, that, that, that one sticks for me with uh, Shane Ross as well I have to say before he's too busy pointing fingers elsewhere but there you go. Um, it's on the uh, page 22 of the Sunday Independent Main section if people want to check it out. Um, it's it's Shane Ross on Pat Hickey. Um, is there anything else on the Olympics, Rory, you want to mention before we move off? Yeah, I think Carl Dennehy's piece in the Sunday Indo is, is, is very good on, on, the, on the doping or potential for doping topic. It's quite balanced. Um, Carl's had an unbelievable Olympics up there with many of, many of the athletes in my book. I think he's, he's, his work ethic has been phenomenal and some of the quality of his work over there has been really really good yeah. and um it, he he just pulls it all together and kind of talks about the kind of background and, and why he understands like he's an athletics, athletics journalist himself and he's he, and a very good one and he, he understands the skeptic skepticism but says he doesn't agree that that you can just write it all off but but you but you should bring some level of kind of a pinch of salt to the table and i mean i mean the fact that even already we're hearing that Lamont Marcel Jacobs who won the 100 metres and was part of the Italy team to win the 100 metres relay is linked to a kind of dodgy nutritionist and is already kind of, the alarm bells are already starting to go off. But he said the time that he ran was way below what we kind of, we were looking at 10 years ago. So 
Um, it is, you know, it's easy to get lost in fantasy of it. I think Sonny O'Sullivan was the only analyst really on TV that I saw over the course of the the games who brought up doping and you know when she was asked to explain why Kenya weren't really punching the, the weight that we we expect them to she just said that you know that the doping control is, is has been tightened over there in the wake of positive cases but you know watching a lot of it you would you would swear that it didn't really exist and and you know I think that, that those two pieces are, are pretty good reminders and there's a piece by Rick Robin very briefly in the Sunday Times mm. um just which I didn't reference before but uh where he talks about the protests and the fact that not everyone in Tokyo was in favour of this and the fact that case numbers have spiralled during the games and that the real legacy of the games won't be known until to, until afterwards. It may not may not be known that, you know, one of his colleagues was actually kind of verbally abused in the street, which, I mean, my experience of Japan two years ago with the World Cup was universal positivity. So for locals to be that, you know, it must be like for, for, to do that, that just shows how moved they were. Um, in anger at the whole thing going ahead, just he was he was abused because he was wearing an Olympics accreditation, and the person who who, who abused him was so frustrated about the fact that the games were going ahead and felt they shouldn't. Um, it's just an interesting uh, insight from someone who was on the ground, with a lot of people are covering this from from home because of COVID and stuff. So, um, the guys who have were on the ground have done an unbelievable job. Um, with Cole being the one that stands out to me anyway. Yeah, agreed. He's been exceptional. We'll take a short break. Katie Liston, Roy O'Connor on the way. Uh, next, more thoughts on the papers. We're going to chat uh, some GA. We'll talk hurling. There's Premier League previews, which are pretty interesting. And uh, coverage of the Lions next. I mean, the Lions obviously uh, went close, but not close enough. Once again, Mornay Stain kicking the winning penalty for South Africa. So we'll see what the Lions coverage is like today next. Now, you're welcome back. We have Rory O'Connor of the Irish Independent, Dr. Katie Liston as well, senior lecturer at Ulster University. So the lines, Rory, this uh, long and unwieldy tour has come to an end. What are the papers making of the lines defeat and Warren Gatland and how the whole thing will be remembered? Yeah, it's obviously quite quite immediate because it's, um, you know, the game was five o'clock, finished around seven. They got it done in two hours last night, I think, or just maybe just over. And... Um, there's no one definitive piece that kind of that you would go to, but I think there's a lot of good points made across a, a number of different um, different places. Um, largely seen as a missed opportunity, I think. Um, I think no one doubts the commitment and the the fact that the Lions had to brave a pretty you know, a test of endurance. Like we talked about, Kelly Harrington being in isolation for 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 a long time, or being you know being in Tokyo on her own for a long time. I mean, the Lions have been there for you know cut off from the rest of South African society for six weeks now pretty much and, and um away from family and Dan Bigger has a column in the in the mail on Sunday which is quite interesting where he talks about just wanting to get home and see his see his daughter, see his, his sister who um his his mother passed away just before the tour. So he's like been cut off from it all. But from a match point of view, like the, there's a line in Bigger's um column that just kind of sums up what where where they went wrong really. Like um He's talking, I presume his ghost got him before the game and, and had a lot of this written and then just put a top on it because of the, just the time involved. But he was talking about the, the week's preparation and, and um, there's a lot, he, he says, the coaches challenged us in our pre-match meetings. They told us we were soft. They laid, laid down a challenge. Physicality became a big theme because as rugby players, especially forwards, you don't want to hear your coaches telling you that you're a bit soft in contact. Now, like, if that's all the lines were being told in training during the week... Um, then it tells you a lot about why they only scored two tries from rolling malls over um, over the course of 240 minutes of rugby. And ultimately, for all that, you know, South Africa was unbelievable pack. It came down to the fact that South Africa took their chances and, and the Lions didn't. And um, Warren Gatland, who has been a lucky general over the years, almost got the stroke of luck when Finn Russell was sent in. And Stuart Barnes writes very well about the impacts uh, Finn Russell had when he came on after 11 minutes um, in changing the way the Lions played. And suddenly... Russell opened up new possibilities in terms of the chances they created, in terms of the movement the players responded to him. And and I know he was injured for the first and second test, so he couldn't have been there. But the mindset shift that he brought, if they had had that from the start, if they'd had a bit of ambition, if they'd gone and played, what could they have achieved over the course of this um, this tour? And when we talk about the joy that Kelly Harrington brought this morning and, and the joy that... We've seen an important role in everything. I think anyone who's been following the Lions closely, particularly in this side of the world, there hasn't been a lot of joy around it. It hasn't been a particularly joyful experience to cover it. It's been pretty sour and pretty uh, turgid. Maybe in South Africa they're celebrating as if they've, they've, they've won the World Cup all over again. Um, they did seem pretty happy about it, but it hasn't been the um, 
the event I think we all, rugby needed or rugby would have hoped for and, and um, it's left a bit of a sour taste in the mouth albeit South Africa deserved their win and, and at least it was won by that one moment of magic uh, by Cheslin Colby last night well I know if there hadn't been that moment of magic you wonder what you could remember from these matches uh, so the headline on Brendan Fanning's piece is poisonous series ends on a high note for South Africa though he says at least this was a match worth watching and it was definitely mm. an improvement uh, this match he says of South Africa certainly the box are mostly dull and brutish but they have top notch skills that can run through phases playing with wit when the mood takes them the pity is for the game and its spectators the mood doesn't wash over them very often uh, Bernard Jackman is certainly a critical ish I would say of Gatland and the job the coaching ticket did talks about the original uh, squad selection and the absence of uh, Henry Slade or Gary Ringrose or Johnny Sexton that affected the ability to get the ball wide and outside that hinge defence that shut the lines down so effectively the back three selection in the second test was costly and he says the lines only scored as you said Rory two tries in the three test matches both with five metre line out drives yesterday despite an improved attack the box defence still relatively uh, comfortable Ian McGeekin in the Telegraph over on the next page as well in the Sunday Independent the headline there is opportunity knocked but tourists turned a deaf ear and effectively I mean he's talking about the Finn Russell thing as well for large periods of the match the Lions played with a dynamism ambition and front foot momentum which made me wonder what could have been had they found that formula early on and that's probably the big critique I would think Katie across the various pages yeah. is that Gatland went out with this incredibly conservative game plan. They were almost South Africa light. It didn't really work. They got away with it in the first test. You suspect South African fitness was an issue. And more by accident than design, the fact that Dan Bigger had to go off injured and Finn Russell was thrown on after 12 minutes, we saw actually that the Lions could have played so much more rugby in this game and it would have been more effective. And that's the the big charge really against Gatland in all the papers today, I think. Yeah, it's it's kind of the sense of a little bit more freedom that came when, when Finn Russell was, was brought onto the pitch. I think on page 11 as well, Bernard Jackman says the big winners from this tour from an Irish point of view were Jack Conan, Tyke Furlong and Robbie Henshaw who could easily be player of the, the series. And I mean, from the Irish perspective, Mick Galway, I think if I remember correctly, I think this is in the Sunday world, also questions the exclusion of Johnny Sexton and, and goes a, a step further because he cites Gatland who's, I think, originally had said, well, you know, Johnny Sexton mightn't last three games or wouldn't necessarily be able to cope with three games in a row. And, and Galway asked the question, well, did he need to play in three games in a row? And certainly maybe the forced inclusion of Finn Russell does get us to think about the ways in which Gatland had planned for any rotation or not, as the case may be, of that out-half position and where, indeed, if ever he saw Johnny Sexton as part of that package moving forward. Um, it also points, I think, to the very fine margins. I mean, there's a there's also a criticism. McGeekin is one of them, talking about that crucial two-on-one um, when Williams had the potential to to, I suppose, take advantage of the overlap and get the lines on the front foot, which have meant that at one stage in the game, they could have been what was it, almost 17-3 up at that stage had they taken mm-hmm. some of the points that were available to them. And there's also certain questions about um, Alan Wynne Jones continually going for the line with some of those kickable points. Um, McGee can talk to the extent to which, you know, get the, get the points on the scoreboard and build the momentum and go from there. Ultimately, he comes down on the side of saying, uh, the Lions fell short, they'll never get a better opportunity because creating chances is just half the job, you also have to finish yeah, them. Yeah. And he says this will sting for the next 12 years. Yeah, I think yeah. McGee can on the decision to kick, they, three, they turned down three kicks at goal in the first half and he's quite nuanced and, and, and teases out quite well in that well the first time they did it they scored a try from it so then you sort of have to do it the second time to see if your mall works again but when that didn't work and you get the third kick that's where you have to take the points and that's the ebb and flow of test match I suppose I mean I was quite thankful Rory for Conor Murray that after turning down the points with 10 minutes to go and ultimately not scoring a try Makovunapola held up and then South Africa won a scrum penalty I was I was quite thankful for his sake that the Lions did get levelled in on the scoreboard so at least it's not a, a massive fallout today about Conor Murray inexperienced captain and turned down the points it's probably still a question mark but at least it's not the well that was the only chance they had to get level well I was I was in New Zealand four, year, four years ago when they drew the series and I mean that didn't satisfy anyone it was a pretty you don't go to on a Lions tour to draw and you know, where, where, whereas Mornay Stein was being told, were being given the kicking tee to go and win it, if Conor Murray had handed the kicking tee to Finn Russell at that moment, that was to level her up. 
Whereas he had a chance to go and put them four points, you know, you know, in theory to go to the corner and try and put them four four points up. And I think he backed the, the bravery of that call. You can't criticise the conservative level of play and then, you know, criticise them then for being brave at the times as well. You know, I I, I would back the players in that regard, and I, I think Gatlin did. Like it it was risky and and it and it didn't come off. But you know, we 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 should applaud players. I think for taking risks and okay. and I mean, there was enough time on the clock for them to go and get the next kick. And it, you know. And they did, and and it went. And even they conceded that penalty. Robbie Henshaw goes up and wins that last uh, last kickoff unbelievably well. I mean, he if they had won, the things that would be written about him today's paper, like he he, he almost single handedly, but maybe with, with help from Mario Toji, kept him in the game. And they get that scrum penalty, and then the pitch gives way underneath Mako Vinopolo's legs, and he gives a penalty away. I mean, Katie mentioned margins. That's that's incredible, you know. And we've, I haven't seen a, a, a view of that that scrum penalty. Mm. Yet from the side where it was actually given, you just have to trust the officials and get on with it. There's not enough going around at, at the moment, but it, it was just, it was an incredible drama. And I'm sure the t- tenor and tone of a lot of the coverage would be very different this morning had yeah. they got that. And it would have been interesting if they if they had won the scrum penalty, if it had been Steve or who was it, um, Nakayanes, whose feet had gone from under him and, and the penalty being given, and it's three points and you're in injury time. Um, do you kick it or do you go to the corner? Do you draw the series like you did four years ago and we get all these weird quotes about kissing her sister or do we go and we go and try and win it and, you know, go death or glory? That's that's an intangible. I'd love to, you know, if, uh, if we get Conor, record, Conor, Conor Murray at some stage off the record, I'd love to ask him what he, what he, what he would have thought because that's a really difficult decision. And because as I said at the start, like 2017 satisfied nobody and they didn't put in place extra time or any sort of way deciding that it was going to be a shared series again. So, um, yeah, you don't go to, on a Lions tour to draw. I, I think you go for it. OK, I'd have taken the draw, but maybe that says something <laughs> about me. <laughs> uh, Stephen Jones, by the way, just to go bigger picture for a second, Katie, um, two things to put to you. Uh, the refereeing debacle, I'll, I'll come to that in a second. Peter Riley writes really well about that. But Stephen Jones, just on this tour, it's, it's worth noting, you know, he says like, he talks about like how much he missed the crowd, and he does say the Lions players and staff were awesome in their professionalism, and I suspect that's true. I can imagine how difficult a tour this has been for them. But he just says of the tour as a whole, like the South African Rugby Union had hoped, because of their dire financial predicament pre-COVID, they had plan they had planned on this tour being worth twenty five million sterling to them. In the end, all they will make is about a quarter of a million profit peanuts. He says. And he talks about the uh, self-serving, vision-free fools who stood in the way of the tour being postponed for one year. And he talked about like the effect that had on the South African economy and, you know, the, the pub owners and the taxi drivers and the boat owners and the various people who would have, you know, had a real chance to recover from COVID with a big Lions tour next year. And he goes on to say, um, frankly, I hated the fact that this tour was not postponed more than I have ever hated anything else in rugby before, during and now after it. So uh, he's not sitting on the fence there about this thing going ahead. That That's one uh, legacy of this tour. And then Peter O'Reilly's just talking about how the refereeing situation has just gone out of control, really, and how like all we're talking about here is referees. And, you know, the the Razzie thing, even aside from that, it just seems like there's been so much focus on who's ref in the game and the TMO conversations just go on and on and on forever. Like you're talking 15 minutes plus of TMO chat per game. So um, your thoughts on those two points? I suppose what I was thinking in the background was, uh, rightly so, uh, from the perspective of us reading our papers today, the focus is on what the Lions missed or could have done. But from the other perspective, and Brendan Fanning mentions this in passing in his piece in the Sindo as well, that we have to remember where South Africa have come from. Um, And in a sense, the commercial juggernaut that's required to support um, high-end performance rugby was probably going to be uh, a source of resistance to reschedule in the, the Lions tour. Um, and I guess that's maybe where Stephen Jones is coming from, Joe. And, and Brendan Fanning talked about the hours that South Africa put in together over the last few years, of course, culminating in, in the Rugby World Cup and then defending almost that reputation for the Lions tour and their belief in the system. And Erasmus has been absolutely critical to that as well. I guess there's there's a case to be said that he's used certainly the participatory forms of social media to, to as much of his advantage as he could within the rules, quote, unquote, and that has led to much of focus, obviously, on the officials as well. But broadly speaking, on the field of play, I think you would have to say that there weren't too many decisions where we would have felt we were robbed, quote, unquote. Um, And I agree with you that had everybody come to the end of this and it 
potentially could have been a draw on the third test. There would have been a lot of people, I think, that would have said, well, yeah, on balance, because it wasn't the most exciting or flair-driven form of rugby. But that does draw attention, I think, to the, the extent to which those commercial imperatives and the, the bid system that goes on for these big events, the Lions being one and the Olympics, of course, being much bigger again, that, you, you know, you're building for that for maybe four years, in the case of the Olympics, eight and often 12 years now. And the, the financial impetus that's built into those bids makes it almost impossible to consider rescheduling because mm. of the extent to which that, that, you know, there's so many things that are interwoven into it. Rory O'Connor. I'm not sure which year it was. I do remember leaving Crow Park with my Mayo parents. Uh, needless to say, Mayo had lost in the Northern final and coming across you, Dublin, all Dublin and happy after uh, one of the finals. So I was uh, curious for your thoughts on Colin O'Rourke's piece here. He's previewing the Mayo-Dublin game. Dreams and reality collide for Mayo. Uh, effectively, he's, he's pretty much saying, look, Dublin are going to win this game. They still have four or five of the best players in the country and they'll be really motivated by this challenge. But the way he talks about how Dublin are navigating their way through football at this stage. I'm, I'm curious for you as a Dublin fan to get your take. So he says, uh, you know, one of the problems at the moment for most teams against Dublin is they're so good at keeping possession that they might just hold on to the ball in their own half. This is if they get ahead, by the way. Uh, anyway, he says, no matter what rule changes are envisaged, there is nobody who could have foreseen where football has ended up, a sort of bad basketball. He says, Dublin have now managed to bore the pants off their own followers. Their style has changed appreciably over the last couple of years, whereas once they were very enjoyable to watch, now there is little excitement. It's a mortal sin for any Dublin player to try and score unless it's a near certainty. Five or six wides is all they ever have, and there's no shooting unless it's within a certain area. Paul Mannion used to kick skyscrapers from the right wing. There now appears to be a complete ban on those attempts. Dublin punch the opposition into their computer and work out how much they want to be ahead at the last water break. They stick on a few points, then they give up attacking, just holding onto the ball. Doesn't sound all that nice to be a Dublin uh, supporter, if that's uh, what you're being subjected to. Um, there is some truth in that, though. I mean, I was watching the Kildare match, obviously. There is a degree of uh, Dublin now just uh, so, um, I guess, assured in their approach. And there's like a rhythm to how they dismantle opponents. And like when the keep ball starts with 10 minutes to go or 15 minutes to go, you kind of think, OK, uh, we're done here. Yeah, and I... I have to say I was there last Sunday as as a fan and I didn't enjoy it really apart from being back in Crow Park and even that wasn't that comfortable because people were it was much I've been to, I've been to the Viva for the Bose games and I, I've been to Croker for the Dubs and the Dubs felt much less um, COVID safe for want of a better phrase if people are much closer to you and it's a much bigger crowd um, I think yeah Conor Rick is struggling because I think he he wants to say that Dublin are basically. Gets, you know, I don't know, does he, does he come close enough? But he, you know, that Dublin are finished. But if you've been saying that the machine that they, you know, that's built around them and the funding and the finances makes everything unfair, it's very hard to admit that suddenly Dublin are vulnerable now. They don't have the, the machine. It seems to have stopped working because the bench isn't as strong as it once was. Um, and the real crux, I mean, Dublin's just just as well we have Kelly Harrington because at the moment our, our main dilemma is who do we lose to? Is, is it uh, is it Kerry or Mayo? You know, that's that's the difficult part. Who do we hand this over to? Um, Mark O'Shea has a good line in his, his intro. He says, um, how do you know when a great team is at its end? It's easy, really, because you end up attending your own funeral. And he goes back to the 2010 exit to down for Kerry and, and the day they realised that they were that they were gone as a team. And like that day is coming, I think, for, for this Dublin team. And like it was always going to come at some stage. And Cluxton was the final the final um, nail in the coffin. And, and, and it's just a matter of who knocks them off. Like who, who finally realises. And then Kildare, I think, had an opportunity last Sunday. And, and just for whatever reason, seemed just determined to keep the score to a certain point rather than go and win the game. Part Daniel Flynn aside. And it works right about the, the style of play. Like it's really just uninspiring. It's mm. methodical. It's robotic. It's... He like Kildare conceded the kickoffs to Comerford, so we gave it to. The, he, he took the easy option every time, and I can understand that because it was there and give it to the corner back, and he can negotiate way through the lines. But Cluxton would have gone for it a few times. He, you know, he would have just put one up, up, up there. They've lost Howard from their half forward line because he's gone back to fill the gaps in the half back line, so that one of their big ball winners is gone. Mm. But there's no jeopardy there. There's no, no. There's no chance of, of kind of, of of breaking it through. And like they never looked like scoring a goal until the one that was disallowed towards the end. Um, and unless they've been holding something back, you know, we've had the COVID um, incident, this kind of, you know, a sense of 
you know, kind of unspoken acrimony around that. There's just something not looking right about them at the moment. And um, yeah. I think O'Shea goes closer to saying they're ready to be knocked off than, than O'Rourke does, but I think they're both thinking it really. And I think everyone in football is. And like for the sport, it's, it, it, you know, it, it's probably his time we had someone, we had someone new, even, even a dub could admit that. Well, O'Rourke does, does ultimately, I think, think Dublin will beat Mayo and is not giving Mayo much of a chance here. He says Dublin still have the four or five best players in the country. And he says they'll be really motivated by this challenge and there's no love lost between the counties. He thinks... Dublin will be far more direct than in their previous two games this year. They'll go hunting for goals. But uh, Katie Rory used the word methodical there. It's it's funny. I was reading this piece on Dublin and the I guess boring is the, the blunt word that O'Rourke is kind of uh, avoiding using. And I was just thinking Barcelona got the same kind of stuff thrown at them or Spain did a little bit where they could just almost um, with their brilliance just apply a certain deadness to the games. There was no jeopardy. There was nothing alive about the game. It was like completely in their grasp and they were very comfortable. And that unfortunately is about 99% of Dublin games over the last number of years. Their their style has certainly, um, they would say it's more refined, but it has certainly uh, evolved over the last year, a couple of years into something less exciting for us. Why would you change something that up to now has been working, probably speaking, Joe? So, I mean, I would imagine if you from inside the Dublin camp is a little bit more nuanced. Yeah, and, well, well and we're, we're talking here as spectators. I mean, what they're doing is brilliant. And the way they strangled the game against Kildare by keeping the ball, it's exactly the right thing to do. In the same way Barcelona keeping the ball and Spain keeping the ball was exactly the right thing to do. I'm talking solely as a um, spectator here. I think O'Rourke is coming at it from the point of view of spectator. I don't think he's yeah. saying it's ineffective. No, and I appreciate what Rory said as well. You know, as a spectator, it would be good to see a change at the top um, because it will add a little bit more interest back into, into the games overall. But Pat Spillane takes a slightly different view, Joe, in the Sunday right. world. He, he says he thinks Dublin are coming to the boil before. Right. Um, and he raises the question of, of whether it will be the Mayo team that was opened up at will by Galway in the first half of the Connacht final or whether they will have now developed more of that mental resolve. Uh, because their last championship win over Dublin was in the 2012 All-Ireland semi-final. He says Mayo have the pace, the power, the personal strength to take down Dublin next Saturday evening. But the caveat is they have to play the game on their terms, forcing Dublin to doubt themselves. And what's your sense? Uh, by the way, I haven't mentioned your football or rugby credentials, by the way. Apologies. So uh, what's your sense of where Dublin are then? It's interesting to see that split opinion with Spillane and, say, O'Shea and O'Rourke. Yeah, I mean, I get the sense that Dublin are going to be able to um, do more, I think, than they're being given credit for at the moment. Now, when it gets potentially to the, the cut and chase of this, a carrier at the other end, I mean, my football and credentials have to go that carry direction, Joe. Um, <laughs> and equally, when it comes to the hurling end, and this is going to be confusing to some of the listeners, it goes the Limerick end, because, of course, I'm, I'm born in West Limerick, but I played Gaelic football for, for Kerry. But I do sense, I do, I agree with Pat Scalan, I think there's a little bit more in the tank from Dublin and it is coming to the boil but it's going to be very much about that that context as a spectator I have to say I agree with you in terms of the enjoyment levels that come from seeing more let, let's call it more free-flowing football and there are times I admit when I find myself wishing that there was more of an emphasis on uh, free-flowing less of the kind of basketball ethos that Colin O'Rourke describes in the game mm. but having been through that at my end uh, you know in terms of high performance sport they're they're definitely building for something with inside that camp that's that's my my gut instinct yeah it does it does raise like the ultimate tension as well Katie in all sports really like the very conservative South African approach the way Dublin are playing now like what is most effective at times is not necessarily the best for spectators and sport initially the rules were devised, uh, to, you know, with a sense of competition in mind and, and tactics were applied to win. Tactics are never there really to put on a show for spectators. And yet, obviously, you sort of need spectators to enjoy it um, for the sport to thrive. And th there's always a tension there at heart, like South Africa. Do they care that the rugby world is saying, God, they don't play any rugby. They barely passed to Cheslin Colby. I doubt they are, and yet that conversation is happening. And you, every spectators and participants just have a very different emphasis when it comes to sport, and that that tension's always there, and it's probably there with Dublin at the moment. It is, and and that journey from you know the kind of initial amateur ethos right through to what we have today, Joe. Inbuilt in all of that, in between, are the changes in rules and regulations that have happened over time. And for instance, it happened in the Premiership as well, where there was a change from the number of points awarded for a win. Many of those rules and regulations are actually designed with the intention of trying to equalise yeah. the playing field, but heighten the tension. 
And what it does, of course, is that then frames the extent to which at the high performance level today, you have the analysts and the coaches working within those rules and regulations to eke out the best way for a win. Like I, d I don't think, Rory, any coaching ticket have sat down the day after the game and said, but were we entertaining enough? Well, particularly in amateur sport, they've no obligation to. I think in, in a professional sport like rugby, which it, not maybe in South Africa, but in, in, in many of the countries that it's played, it's not a it's not a majority sport. There is an obligation to safeguard your future by entertaining the, the people who pay your pay your bills. But in, in Gaelic games, there certainly isn't. I mean, winning the All Ireland is all. Desi Farrell is contracted. If he isn't, if if even he ha he has a physical contract to do so. Um, you know, I don't think that he, that's his that's his main be all end all. And Desi Farrell was on loads of entertaining teams that won that that failed to win at the end of the day, and and that were involved in classic games that that came up short. So I'm sure he's been hardened by that experience. And I think Dublin are more entertaining when people when the opposition engages them um, in yes. a way that Mayo and Kerry will. And those games, you know, if they if if they end up overcoming Mayo. They would. I think that they will leave us with not like you know. They'll be like Russell Crowe and Gladiator saying, "Are you not entertained?" Because they always rise to those occasions, and they won't give it up easy. You know, I, I kind of was. You know, I, I still want them to go on and do it. I mean, I, I as a fan, I like I, I want the team to come and engage them, and I want them to overcome that challenge. And um, but I do think this is probably the year where it happens. I think this is like it'd be classic Mayo to beat Dublin and lose to Kerry in, in, in the end, wouldn't it? I mean, to finally get over the 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 hill, only to find the mountain waiting for them. <laughs> yeah. And I totally agree with that point. I think part of the problem here is Dublin gets so clear midway through a second half that they don't need to score again. So keeping the ball makes perfect sense. Killing the game makes sense. Whereas Mayo and Kerry will push them and I'm sure Dublin will keep on coming down. Katie, you picked out, I know, a couple of other GA stories. I didn't get a chance to read these just with Kelly Harrington and everything going on this morning. Is there anything you want to pe pe uh, point people towards rather? Yeah, just very briefly, Joe. There's a really nice feature piece, um, if, if you will, on goalkeeping as such. It's almost a double page feature but it, it, it's one one side is this is the Sunday Times apologies um David Clark and then picking up as well on the kind of goalkeeping technique within Monaghan at the moment but it's a really, really nice reflective piece on his career um and the extent to which he tries to make sense of the fact that he never got that All-Ireland medal um but it, there's a nice balance in the context of you know other things that become more important to him as his career progresses the extent to which he managed injury the challenge of never being, I suppose, comfortable or always comfortable as the first choice, number one, and what that brought right. to the, the coaching and the competitive ethos within Mayo as well. And it's a nice build-up, I think, mm. hopefully, to from, from a Mayo perspective, what might be a, a successful outcome for them. Yeah, I must read that um, afterwards, David Clark. Is he, um, like, how does he reconcile having this amazingly, I suppose, interesting, exciting 20s and 30s and... and playing with people you know who are friends for life versus not getting over the line is he ultimately retiring happy or does he say it's it's a massive regret yeah he says it would be nice to know what it would have felt like to win in all ireland uh, you'd feel a bit unfilled but you can think about it too much too i'm still happy with what i got out of my career i had a great time even outside of football there were great learnings as a person but maybe it was the way i was brought up i always wanted to be known as someone who did things right hmm. um and then th this is a piece by Christy O'Connor, so it's page 24 and 25 of the, the Sunday Times. And O'Connor finishes by saying, that precious medal was never going to define who Clark was and what he stood for. His splendor was bound up in his brilliance and endurance. His obsessive quest was marked by grace and dignity and perseverance of never giving up, of never giving in. And that was the real goal. And I think O'Connor is able to conclude that on the basis of having spoken to Clark as well. So I didn't get a strong sense of something lost or a sense of regret, Joe. Um, mm. But, you know, you can, you can enjoy the read afterwards. Yeah. Uh, Rory, um, I know you were uh, fully prepared to give out about the lack of acknowledgement of Bohemians in Europe and then, alas, your rant was scuppered. Yeah, no, good piece by Aidan Fitzmaurice on kind of, the, you know, it's n nothing nothing too long, but it, it sums up the week that was. I mean, amidst all of this incredible Irish achievement in, in, this, in global sport, uh, to have Rovers, Bowes and Dundalk going unbeaten in, in the Europa Conference League this week against high-calibre opposition, particularly in the case of Bowes and Dundalk, um, it has been just a really, really good week for, for Irish football. And, and you know, I I'd hoped, you know, I kind of opened the papers more and hoped an expectation that, like, because of everything that's going on, which I completely understand, that... Um, it will be covered because we're in the middle of basically it's half time in these three legs and, and there's a real chance that we'll have three representatives in the final qualifying round next in the week after next if they can complete the job and and it's happening behind, i know you had dan under in a week and, and he, he went through really well but like 
the Aviva Stadium on Tuesday was was truly, truly special. It was just an incredible night to see a young Irish football team to go out and you know not not quite play a team with a, a budget of sixty five million off the park, but to deserve their win was was a really stirring thing. To, to, uh, Emer Lam was there, the, the Olympic medalist as well, which is which is great to see from Cabra. Yeah. Uh, oh, I think your Wi-Fi is letting us down. And sometimes gets forgotten on Sundays, so it, it's, it is worth a look. Okay, you're back. Perfect. Yeah, I totally agree on like what's going on in Irish football right now, Rory. We're potentially potentially here at a tipping point. Like if we can get Irish clubs winning in Europe and these games at the Aviva Stadium routinely, this thing could really take a quantum leap. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.